Hello, everyone. Welcome to state-sponsored programming. This is Will Blysath, and today we have an exclusive interview with Mr. Gorman. Mr. Gorman, thank you for coming on. Well, my privilege, Will. My privilege. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, socialism. It's a, it's definitely one of my favorite topics, and definitely one of Mr. Gorman's as well. So, Mr. Gorman, what is your opinion about socialism as an economic and political philosophy? It's romantic, and um, beyond an immediate family, um, grotesquely and lethally impractical. And I say romantic because it looks, the promoters of socialism look at society and see inequity or inequality of outcome. And, and they firmly believe, belief, not empirical, hypothesizing, testing, but they believe that there, there's a superior way to rearrange society to ensure their individual ideas that somehow are meant to be collectivized and just, you know, can be translated into some kind of utopian equality of outcome. And I say it's practical at the family level because, I don't know, you, you have siblings, correct? Yeah. Do your parents ever say, well, Will's earned that, Allie, too bad, Allie. That's just the way it goes. Or they want to see as much as possible you and Allie have the same type of um, access to everything they've done mm -hmm. for your family. I mean, to me, that's a form of socialism that can work. But right. It's, it's, it's at the granular domestic level. It's also because both of my parents are essentially producing everything and then I, <laughs> I live off the benefits. Exactly. So, th so thank you, parents, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, I thank your parents, too. They're wonderful people, clearly. But um, I do not believe it's um, in a philosophical core that approaches, um, you know, a level of attractiveness that achieves, you know, individual desires to, to transcend one's limitations. It, 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 it's kind of already grounded in this, to my way of thinking, backward way of looking at the world, where let's... Yeah. let's Let's come up with an equality of outcome without even considering individual innovations that could um, allow people to achieve at their rate of speed, whatever yeah. it might be, light speed, slow speed, turtle speed, um, whichever the case might be. So that's definitely, one, that's definitely one reason that capitalism is superior to socialism. But do you think there's any ways that socialism is superior to capitalism other than attracting uh, young Bernie teens? <laughs> I'm gonna. I haven't seen many young Bernie teens. Uh, now I have in a few of my um, less guarded moments in class referred to Bernie as kind of like the angry Muppet. Yeah. Um, next to you know the the, the Cheeto president and the, and the tech guru Hillary. Um, but uh, and I, and I have really seen no pushback among your peer group. I I'm not sensing this is. Um, out, you know, independent of a few bumper stickers I've seen in the parking lot, of student, the student lot of, of Bernie bumper, bumper stickers. I haven't seen this big yeah. um, rallying to Bernie or uh, Ocasio-Cortez or last night the winner of the Massachusetts primary, congressional primary, who's another um, progressive socialist, Ms. Presley, okay. defeated Capuano. So I, I haven't seen that here um, rippling out to Bay Village, per se. But I do recall and continue to see a significant minority among students over the years 
embrace, you know, oh my goodness, capitalism is so flawed. Why can't we be like socialist yeah. Sweden or socialist or France? I mean, I've right. always heard Sweden and France thrown out there by students who, who do get into um, the weeds a bit about that issue. So what's your response to the people that essentially say that socialism works because of Sweden and Norway? I hear that argument it's, all the time. It's 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 um it's inaccurate. Those uh, I mean, um, correct me if I'm wrong. The the founder of IKEA is Swedish. That started there. He moved, but IKEA has a robust private sector, um, even in their height of, of of developing their rather generous welfare state, and they have a significant welfare state, but it doesn't exist analogous to your you and Ali getting more or less equal benefits without yeah. the, um, the sweat and innovation and movement of a market, a relatively market economy. Mm -hmm. France too. Canada too, because I often hear, you know, the canard, well, Canada is socialist. Well, they have socialized medicine, which is not a matter of discussion entirely, or can certainly support the idea of relative comparison, socialist medicine versus less socialist medicine, but Canada has a robust free economy for, mm -hmm. you know, many indices in the world, third party, by many indices by, done by third party uh, researchers, Canada's economy has been freer at times than the United States. I know so, they, they rank high in terms of the, the I think it's the Heritage Foundations or, or some foundations most like economically free country yeah. with, with Singapore and New Zealand yeah. also yeah. be very Justin, high. Justin Trudeau hasn't radically change things that much. I don't know what, you know, what a, four, a second term for him will do or will do for the Canadian economy in those areas. But, um, I mean, for goodness sakes, I mean, the, the, the statement that those are socialist countries um, doesn't hold up to scrutiny. They, they have robust welfare states compared to what people who say these things perceive the United States having, yeah. which there's no more scrutiny. We have we have a pretty significantly large and larger welfare state. Yeah. So, do you think that any sector of the economy should be socialized whatsoever, or are you a full full frontal free market? <laughs> we talk about the sort of thing at that time of day in a public school. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll go back to the old cliche by libertarians: beyond providing for defense. I'm not real clear on what should be run top to bottom sideways by government. You know, when it comes to the military and um, other defense-oriented matters or protecting the peace in terms of police work yeah. or, or emergency service work, I'm not sure where, where I want you know, the, the government running things. When you have the government running things, that opens the door to a lot of uh, unwelcomed inefficiencies. And I say unwelcome because who in their, I, even ninth graders are aware that I've seen of the unique privilege it is to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles. Mm -hmm. And no matter how well staffed the DMV is with um, well-intentioned people, I have yet to meet a ninth grader who goes there for their you know beginning process of, of becoming a driver, getting their temps, or just going there with their family, because their family, the parents have to go there, they, you know, they find it really difficult, and they find and they get the the inefficiencies that are just locked in right there. It's one of the great one of the great models of uh, what 
what one would get if you went to Canadian Way in healthcare. Because having experienced some Canadian healthcare last year, two hospital visits in Canada, um, I almost felt embarrassed by how harshly I criticized the DMV. Yeah. I was moved along much more efficiently and kindly through the DMV than I was through Canadian healthcare. Which in is an, pretty in, sad. In an emergency room, mind you, too, in Canada. So, um, and I end up paying big for that, too. And because in Canada, if you're a foreigner, inevitably you get presented the bill. Right. So we talk, we've kind of talked about how countries such as you know Norway, um, Sweden, Canada, France, they have, as you said, generous welfare states, but they also have a pretty robust free market economy and other retrospects, which kind of helps the welfare state chug along. But there have been uh, countries that have actually implemented socialism. So what? So what's been that effect? <laughs> um, uh, I'm so old, I remember people your age, in, you know, around 2004, 2003, 2004, walking around, and, and these people will go nameless, just extolling the virtues of what Hugo Chavez was doing in Venezuela. Yeah. And redistributing the economic pie there, using oil as a means of achieving social justice. And where are we now with Venezuela? What is happening in Venezuela? Um, a lot. I'm so old. I remember Bernie Sanders, Senator Sanders, extolling the virtues of, of Hugo Chavez. To say nothing of the Hollywood glitterati who who looked looked at him the way they've often looked at uh, the late Fidel Castro. And the situation there is uh, rapidly approaching a failed state. Colombia is absorbing refugees at an astronomical and incomprehensible level. Mm -hmm. And this isn't a conspiracy perpetuated by the Bush, Obama, Trump administrations. It's been a self, it's been a choice by that, by that nation's leadership to, to go in that direction. And the outcome has been as predictable as it was in Cambodia and China and prior to that, the Soviet Union. It's just on a, on, a, on a smaller level. You look at Venezuela's GDP and economic prosperity when oil was $18 a barrel compared to the price of oil right now was what, $60, $65, $70 a barrel? I mean, and that's their number. They have more oil than any country in the world. Mm -hmm. And they were prospering more pre-Chavez when oil was at $18 a barrel because they had far less government management of the economy. I remember learning about a phenomenon. I forget what it's called, but it's, I think it's called like the resource curse. When a, So when a country uh, has like, let's say a large supply of oil or a large supply of something, then, you know, there's obviously risk of the government or some cartel like taking it over, which can cause, which you see also in the Middle East, which is really sad. But even so, you know, I, I, I know that Venezuela once had a, a much more prosperous economy than what they do now <laughs> it, it was it was one of it, was, it may have been the leading economy until the uh, when, Ch when Chavez took over as well as Maduro have aligned themselves with with Havana and the Cuban economy for people who've been there and they're based students who have gone to Cuba yeah my, my parents would know and they and you, they told you that um, they, they, they they can tell you firsthand the you know the prosperity that that, that socialism brought to, to that country, which, you know, there's a, a counter-argument to be made had there been no Cuban revolution, um, Havana becomes more like Miami as opposed to right. uh, Tirana, Albania on, in the Caribbean. So I think uh, a good example of a, 
Latin American country, by contrast, that has tried free market capitalism would definitely be Chile. So if you want to talk about that, that they're kind of in the complete yeah, opposite and, direction. And that's, and that's a controversial one too because I am, again, so ancient. I remember as a kid the controversy surrounding the coup against Allende, pretty hardcore left Marxist government. And there was a coup there that somehow the United States in 1973 was was – considered the, the, the engineers of. Mind you, this is a time the United States could barely engineer its withdrawal from Vietnam, and the president was already, at the time, Nixon being, you know, rapidly being bogged down by the Watergate scandal, which he helped create, and then the cover-up was, you know, was being exposed, and and the economy itself during that time was was teetering. And yet, you know, the United States had enough wherewithal to assist in the overthrow of the Ende and the installation of Pinochet, General, Generalissimo Pinochet, who, while a dictator, did by 1988, 89, 90, by the late 80s and by 1990, oversee the demarxification, if that's a word, of Chile to the point where it was and politically flexible enough to accommodate left of center, right of center. And Pinochet himself stepped down without being overthrown. And then eventually would be tried uh, and held in contempt by the Chileans. But, you know, he stepped down. Just It was an era where that sort of thing seemed to be happening all the time. I do. I he, do. Lived a, he lived an old age to 91. So, but... Uh, I, yeah, he stepped out. He gave up the presidency in 1990, uh, but he still was a, a significant figure in the army to 1998. Okay, mm-hmm. so there obviously was some problems though when it comes to yeah. people people being silent. He was charged. Like he so, was yeah. charged. I don't know. I don't think he. Yeah, there, to a, to a legitimate point of view that he oh, well, never paid his debt of justice for the bloodbath he oversaw in '73. You know that's good. That's fine. I, I can I can certainly um, see that point. However, you mentioned before the fact Chile is a is a, is a beacon of, of prosperity in, in a region that could use a lot more of it. Uh, For sure. Not that Peru isn't doing well and Colombia has made dramatic improvement, but that that instability in Venezuela is to be concerned about, given um, the, the the long hill of, of trials and tribulations that the Colombians have climbed. So are you so we we're kind of talking about how at the beginning how socialism is is very is very romanticized but works terribly in practice. So would you would you go far as to say that the whole philosophy of it in terms of when it comes to whole whole governments or whole countries is in itself immoral or do you think it's more of a just a romantic philosophy that works out terribly in principle? It's the latter to be direct. It's the latter. You can see advocates of of socialism themselves will ultimately acknowledge this. Walter Duranty, New York Times columnist back in the early 20th century when he visited the Soviet Union and talked in, in, in high praise of Stalin's work there. And when it was called into question what was going on with Ukrainians, and the the you know the depth of the of the suffering Stalin put upon them and collectivizing those folks, the millions killed 
which was, you know, in, in, which I think equals or dwarfs the Holocaust. Duranty said, well, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, mm -hmm. which to me is, is a pretty flagrantly callous acknowledgement, but an acknowledgement all the same that the system really doesn't work because no one would tolerate that sort of bloodbath on these in this part of the world, I would assume. But mm -hmm. again, Castro has been upheld by his critics as being his means of as, as being necessary to protect gains of the revolution. Or they'll they'll get all advocates will get all um, transactional and say, yeah, but everyone in Cuba has, you know, free health care and high literacy, even though they've sacrificed their freedom. Yeah. And I give credit to students from like 10 to 12 years ago who said, yeah, that was a worthy trade-off. Draw your own conclusions there, but I, I find that kind of a terrifying trade-off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Orwellian, the, as you might say. In the, in the, in the, in the U.S., are, you know, without, you know, a, with more of a capitalist economy, had, I'm sure has high literacy rates as well. So you can definitely have public education with, within a capitalist society. Yeah, but in our ever more digital age, it seems we have people who just don't or won't remember things. I mean, we have a we ha we have a, a growing amnesiac society. So, so speaking of like uh, socializing different parts of the economy, so would you, are you still in agreement with the, you know the idea of a of public school as hmm. as long as you know maybe maybe we have like a voucher type system or, or are you even skeptical of that? Um, it's a tough one because I don't want to talk myself into an early retirement, but. I, I would prefer to see a lot more market influence, a lot more flexibility. There are so many uh, elements of public school education which are echoes of my military experience in terms of the structure of the school day, the, the centralized decision-making, the bureaucratic rituals. And it really begs the question when you juxtapose those bureaucratic characteristics to the rhetoric that it's all about serving the students, it's, it seems to be nothing but you know a chasm between the needs of the bureaucracy versus the needs of the students. Right. Uh, you know, as nearly coming from nearly thirty years of teaching, I I really didn't think things would remain so unchanging from you know the late eighties, early nineties to now. You know, yeah, we have more technology, but still, you know, the bells ring. The hour of the school day isn't really best for kids your age or younger. Um, there are a lot of decisions that seem to be made for the benefit of the adults, right? At least as much, if not more, for the kids. But that's not going to be talked about. Yeah, I I, I do know that. Just I, I remember looking at Reason, which is this kind of more libertarian oh, yeah. outlet, free markets, free minds, and it was and it was talking about how this libertarian. There was a very poor uh, school district, and so he literally made schools that were very efficient, very effective, and way better than the public ones for about five thousand dollars a student. And, that, and, I'm, and it's, it was crazy, and he, and he did a lot of things to cut prices down. Like there, there wasn't any in order to make it cheap and affordable for students to have a good education. They didn't have a cafeteria. They didn't have certain things that other schools did. But the students were having a phenomenal education, and they just packed their lunch. So there is there, you know, there. I think there definitely is, and something I think I admire about Chile's, which comes to education sector, is they have a voucher where. So poor students actually, it's it's graduated. So it's tenly harder. It's 
generally harder to student uh, to teach uh, students from more poor areas. So they accomplish part of that problem by having them have even more more of a voucher, which allows them to have educational choice. So and I think it would be really cool to see public and private schools to be you know kind of kind of forced to compete a little bit through uh, a voucher system. And to that, I think that definitely raise quality. To, to piggyback on what you're saying, Will, I've often had a friendly debate with a, uh, a few colleagues about how we've had a successful voucher program on an epic scale at the university college level known mm-hmm. as the GI Bill. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what that is. The pushback I get is, well, that was for adults. I go, but still adults are making decisions for their sons and daughters. If we trusted it at that level, why not trust it at the most local level? For sure. So, do you so do you believe in any sort of government created social social safety net whatsoever, such as welfare programs or healthcare programs for the poor, uh, etc.? Yes. Even Adam Smith, who wrote a lot, and everyone remembers Wealth of Nations, but he also wrote quite a bit on on those sorts of what would be termed today social justice issues. Uh, and to me, yeah, uh, yes. I mean, there, there, there's only one caveat I'd put on those. They're the, the, the means-tested route. I mean, I don't know. Um, Bill Gates and E.J. Gorbin shouldn't be getting the same, um, you know, we shouldn't be have we just shouldn't be in Social Security because we reach a certain age, yeah. and what we get back should be means tested. Now right. that that becomes controversial because then people say, "Oh my God, you're going to turn this great program, this great pension program, into a welfare program." But that was what you asked about welfare, and, and that is a safety net that was created in the from the United States uh, government's point of view as a way to address the, the epic suffering, uh, particularly at that point in the 1930s, so many um, elderly people. And um, it was created with a certain cynicism in mind, too, right? I mean, the age people were going to start collecting was 65. Why did they come up with that? I mean, from, from the actuarial point of view, because few would live at, right. to 65 at age. It's a different world today. Yeah. Everyone's living at least 10 years longer, notwithstanding opioid epidemic and all that. So, yeah, those things should exist, but can they, you know, can they be efficiently run while also um, meeting the needs of those um, those people in those dire situations, and because you know, it, I, I've heard it before, and it's probably by someone I don't like, but it still sticks. Can we make sure the safety net doesn't become a hammock? Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons why we don't want it to become a hammock. It's fiscally unsound, and um, to quote Her- Herbert Hoover, it does erode our character. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Roosevelt himself was an advocate of getting people back to work. Right. In spite of all the alphabet programs that created the big explosion of a federal welfare state, he still was a believer that people had to get back to work. So if we were going to continue to have those uh, social safety nets, what do you think would be the best way to, impl- to implement them? For me, I'm a very big fan of, of vouchers. I think that especially when it comes to, to uh, health care, uh, implementing a voucher system for for peop- for both Medi- Medicaid and Medicare would would allow for a lot of would allow for more competition and people to actually competitively price their goods, which would cut costs. But maybe maybe you have some other ideas as well. So I um, I don't think I have any original ideas, except I do want to see more because I think it's 
on the right path. I do believe what Senator Rubio is suggesting for family leave is a fascinating proposal. He's promoting this idea for family leave, and the question is, how will this be funded? Because that could be pretty expensive. Easy. Let people access what they put into Social Security mm -hmm. as a payout for what they need right now. That's, as you can imagine, getting a lot of pushback. I think it's incredibly original, one of the best policy ideas I've heard, because that's, that's money you, we, you as a worker in the economy, in most cases, have put in. That's been taken out of your paycheck. So what better way to, um, to, to get something back and accommodate the, 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 a, a big area to socially safety net that families need parents around, whether it's a father or mother, it really doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, that's, that's the kind of public, creative public policy idea like because it sort of has what the late John McCain used to talk about, a pay-as-you-go mm -hmm. type of um, structure that's kind of already built in. And I know, I know Singapore has a system, with their system, they, they end up having uh, private accounts in which people can uh, put, in which people put money in for their health care yes. and they can access it out, which works phenomenally. Yeah, there, there were a lot of, um, a lot of uh, limitations on that that I think might still be in place. I don't know if the, the Trump administration has, um, has uh, executive order goes away, but and the uh, Health Care Reform Act, those, there were a lot of limitations put on those private yeah. health accounts, which were um, a burgeoning area of our health care economy before 2010. So, yeah, that would, to me, again, that's, that's where when you talk about health care and the role of government, well, ideally and practically, I'd like, this is where the market, I think, could do a lot of good, and we've seen it. Consider LASIK surgery, mm -hmm. where that was 20 years ago, and how much it cost. And there's been little or no government um, regulation of that in, in the sense of um, subsidizing and health insurance and mandates. That's pretty much been out there like veterinary mm -hmm. cost, like everyone with their pets. Mm -hmm. in both cases, or plastic surgery. There is no insurance that pays for plastic surgery. In most cases, mm -hmm. and yet this is affordable to everybody for sure over so, time. Just as and, and 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 I'll draw an analogy to automobiles. Automobiles, top of the line automobiles, have let's go back. I don't know five, ten years. Bluetooth capability, um, electronic locks, all have air, satellite radio, and that was only for people who are in the high end. But how long does it take for that? Those, those. Yeah, my my, my uh, parents' cars have well, at least my mom's car has access to all that. So right, and that happened organically, and I don't know why. If 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 you got um, government and big insurance, that nexus more and more out of the way, how healthcare could go along that path too. For sure. Any recommended reading for those interested in learning about the effects of socialism and anything uh, we talked about today? <laughs> Well, you know the you know the high end. I'm going to recommend Frederick Hayek, The Road to Serfdom. Um, I'd also recommend Kevin Williamson's guide. This it's called it. I think it's one of those. Uh, what you, an, an, an idiot's guide to socialism. Yeah. Kevin Williamson's brilliant. I don't like the title. Those would be great. Those would be great reads, especially Williamson's, because it's very direct. Hayek talks like an Austrian professor, yeah. which is great. But 
I'd also throw in, I haven't got the chance to read it, but I bought Thomas Sowell's uh, Basic Economics, and that's, uh, I've heard that's a phenomenal read, which I, which I need to get to and educate myself yeah, on. Soul is going to give you um, hours of, of intellectual growth, as well as my, he just came out with another book, too. Wow. And for fun, even, and I think it's actually very instructive, but I, I don't think it gets better than Orwell's um, Animal Farm. Yeah. As far as fiction goes, I mean, it's it's an allegory. It's a hundred odd pages, and it really outlines um, everything we've talked about. For sure, absolutely. With 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 kind of sick humor. So, th- thank you guys for listening. Thank you again, uh, Mr. Gorman, for he- being here for the interview. My privilege, Will. Uh, this is state sponsored programming.